Hello and welcome to the Shakti Hour podcast on Ramdas's Be Here Now Network. I'm your host, Melanie Moser, and we are returning now to the Shakti Sacred Music series, conversations about sacred music and the feminine voice. Today you are in for a treat. I got a chance to speak with manager and author Danny Goldberg, who once had the Rock and Rolls podcast on the Be Here Now Network. I highly recommend checking out his backlog of great chats. We sat down and got to listen to something from the Aretha Franklin record, Amazing Grace. And the timing of this was fantastic because it was uh, just about a month before the theatrical release of the live movie uh, showing the recording of this album. And so I got turned on to this particular medley that Danny played and then we got to talk about it for like an hour before I even got to see the film and I highly recommend if you have time and it's in your town or when it becomes streaming that you get out and and watch this film and, and take it in as a as a spiritual uh, teaching and listening into this record itself, as Danny says later on, is is actually like a transmission directly of the the energy of Jesus. Danny is uh, an incredibly accomplished uh, music manager, has worked with so many great people. His new book, Serving the Servant, talks about his uh, relationship with Kurt Cobain as he was managing uh, Nirvana some 20 odd years ago. And um, this conversation is super deep and super cool. And I didn't know how to edit out this medley that Danny chose for us to listen to. So I kept the whole thing in. You can always go to shaktisacredmusic.com and hear the full tracks of everything in the series and get more information on the guests and the artists. But here I just let Danny introduce it and let it play because there really is no good place to cut into Aretha's delivery of this beautiful medley and this directive to meditate on Jesus. I hope you are enjoying the Shakti Hour podcast. You can join us on patreon.com slash Shakti Hour if you'd like to listen into the unedited conversations in the Shakti Sacred Music series. You can also follow along on Twitter at Shakti Hour. And everything is on the BeHereNowNetwork.com Shakti Hour page. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the Shakti Hour on iTunes and leave us a rating and review. And please let us know um, what you'd like to hear on the Shakti Hour. We're putting together some new programming for the fall, and I'd love to hear from you. The Shakti Hour podcast at gmail.com. Now on to Danny Goldberg and Aretha Franklin, and thank you so much for listening. What I have queued up is a, um, a medley from Aretha Franklin's album, Amazing Grace. This was uh, something she recorded. She's just about 30 years old. She'd become a superstar just in the previous th three or four years where she had the big hits like Respect and Natural Woman and so forth. And she returned to her roots. Her father had been a big... Uh, um, uh, pre preacher in, 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 in Detroit and a, and a protege, or not a protege, contemporary of Martin Luther King and a big supporter of Dr. King, uh, Reverend C.L. Franklin, who's also, uh, and, and she did a, um, a, um, an all gospel concert in a church in Los Angeles and it was recorded. And the album, which is called Amazing Grace, uh, became, and I think to this day, is still the best-selling gospel album ever. 
and um, it was filmed, and the film stayed in a vault for decades for reasons that I don't totally understand. And then it was finally released in the last couple of months, after, right after her death, they sorted out the legal problems. And it's stunning. Uh, I don't know if it's on digital services yet, but it will be any, any minute. It was shown in little art theaters in the last few months. And I, a friend of mine got me a copy of it uh, early, uh, maybe six or eight months ago, and I just became so mesmerized with the, with, the, with the beauty and the spirit of it that I just watched it repeatedly. So this track is a medley of the gospel classic, uh, Take My Hand, Precious Lord, and Carol King's song, You've Got a Friend. Awesome. Let's hear it. When you're down in trouble, you need some love and care. Ain't nothing. Wow. wow. It kills me every time I hear it. I just <laughs> tripped out listening to it again. <laughs> There's so much. How does it even sound that good? Well, she, she got, again, she was at the peak of her f commercial power, so there was no problem. She used the same engineers that made all the big Aretha Franklin hits. She had uh, Tom Dowd and Arif Martin and Jerry Wexler, the same people who produced Natural Woman and everything there, and they brought it, the sound truck and did the mixing. Uh, she got her musicians, the great musicians that played with her, and some great chorus from uh, an L.A. church. I forget what they were called. So it was done with tremendous 
care and attention on, 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 every, on every level. And uh, obviously her singing, she doesn't need any help with that. Just got to just try to capture it. It is so cool how surrendered and held in the space it is. Like it's so, it's instantly sacred from the feeling of the space <laughs> of the sound to me. Because I can feel that they're inside of this. Well, she's certainly not the only R&B star who first sung in, in, in a church. But, but she, she, she did grow up in a church. Her father was this reverend. She was, in, in the movie, you'll see there's, there's a, a great gospel artist named Reverend James Cleveland, who, who was a pure gospel artist who had worked with her from the time she was a teenager. They were friends. And, and he is kind of the musical director of, of, the, of this particular performance. So, you know, she emerged from that uh, spiritual tradition. This was not something she was uh, experimenting with. This was a return to how she was brought up. And right, at the same time, she was at the peak of her musical powers to execute it right. and express it. And to me, just as a listener, it's a way of tuning into Jesus. You know, it's just so hard to separate some of these names that are so incredibly famous like Jesus from <laughs> you know the catholic church and mm. evangelicals and all sorts of rules and political and cultural stresses that that are and and to and to remember the actual essence of Jesus is is difficult for me but it's not difficult when i listen to her right well that's i think that's what i'm getting at is it it's it wasn't her on top putting her talent on top of the church. It really felt like it was coming out of it. Yeah, coming through her, yeah. for sure. Coming in, in, yeah. in the, coming out of that. And the, and the support of the backing choir and even of the band, when that, first, when that is it, it's like the bass line that comes in, is just crazy. It's just like a slapping on a table or something, but so um, perfect in its evolution like, and in its build. Yeah, the whole album's pretty spectacular. And again, anybody who can get access to the film, and I'm sure in this era of streaming, these things have yeah. become pretty easy to get. It's it's a really wonderful. It's just concert. There's no uh, other backstage documentary or interviews or anything. It, but it's 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 my favorite concert film. And this is great for us rock and roll freaks. It's you know 99% of the audience is black. And then in the middle, it was two, it was recorded and filmed over the course of two days. They did two different performances and combined the highlights of them. And on the second day, there's the camera pans and you see in the back Mick Jagger and Keith Richards there. Somebody must have from because you know they knew people at, at the record company and someone must have told them you might want to check this out. It's it's just kind of a little a little vicarious glimpse at what that <laughs> moment must have been like in LA. But uh, the music is the main thing. And it's, uh, you know, music has this way of breaking through, uh, you know, other parts of the mind that, uh, you know, connecting you with something special when, when it's at its best, you know, it, it, music can do a lot of other things. But when music does that, it's got a particular uh, energy to it that uh, much appreciated. You know, I think it's the same thing of, uh, you know, kirtan or, you know, uh, all sorts of other spiritual music. But I, I definitely think she's in that league spiritually to me. Totally. And also the, the, the image of the two of them in the back of the church, though, actually, actually is per pertinent to my 
curiosity in that, you know, maybe people would not associate uh, the stones with sacred music. No, no, I don't. But you associate them with, with black music. There's no question the Rolling Stones was an homage to R&B. I mean, the name Rolling Stones was taken from a Muddy Waters song called Rolling Stone. And, and all their first records, they were doing their versions of Marvin Gaye songs and Smokey Robinson songs and so on. And, and, and there's no question that their musical style is directly uh, influenced by, by the blues and R&B. So I think they might, I don't know if they came for Jesus, but they got him. You know, I'm sure they were there initially, possibly for the music, because she's also just, in pure musical terms, the greatest singer of her generation, many of us feel, uh, certainly the, of that idiom, of that genre. But uh, nonetheless, they were there, and I, I bet even, even, even no matter what, the, I have no idea what the spiritual thoughts are of members of the Stones, but um, <laughs> I can't imagine being there and not feeling something. Well, of course, but I mean, she, she herself, Aretha herself, spoke of her voice as a gift from God. Yeah. I mean, she said that this is what this is and this is what I'm supposed to yeah, use Yeah, no, it for. she's a preacher's daughter yeah. and, and didn't run away from it, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, and also was proud of her, you know, pop and secular music. But it's interesting, again, a lot of artists made that crossover. Ray Charles came out of the gospel world and then became a gigantic pop and R&B icon. Uh, Sam Cooke, same thing. The early Sam Cooke recordings of the Soul Stirrers, if you were asking for men or women, I would have had a hard time choosing between Sam Cooke's gospel and Aretha's. But Aretha uniquely, after she became successful, revisited it with full focus and attention and created that record as well as some subsequent things. So that's, that's what's so honoring about it is that it, it feels, I can feel that. And I like that you use the word revisited because I can feel that it isn't it isn't a it isn't a going back to redo or to replace it with something else it's going back to like bring that power of the pop world basically yeah, in, into correct. it and to and to imbue it with that moment yeah. in time and and it worked it was extraordinarily yeah. successful <laughs> long time ago so it's easy to forget but in the context of the early 1970s yeah. it was a gigantic gigantic commercial success uh, the record far itself. greater the record yeah. itself far greater than any other gospel music of that well, Elvis era. Elvis did that too, no? Elvis I mean, did. Elvis yeah. did and I like some of Elvis's gospel stuff, but not quite as much as I like Aretha's. No. So what do you get when you say you feel you get a connection with Jesus through this? Like what is, what does that mean to you? What's that experience like? Well, it's another doorway to the unnameable ocean of love, you know. Uh you know, I, I, my spiritual teacher was named Hilda Charlton, and she used to say, you know, whether water is in a glass or it's in a bottle, it's still water, and that that all the true spiritual vehicles are vehicles of that one spirit. So, growing up with the name Goldberg. I um, was attached to the idea we're a Jewish family. We're not a particularly religious family growing up, but it was still culturally Jewish. And I was a little um, negative about the whole Christianity thing. 
uh, especially because this elementary school I went to was mostly Catholic kids, and every once in a while there'd be some weird moment. And it took me until I really read Ramdas and met Hilda and, and started meditating in my early 20s to reopen my mind to the idea that Jesus, as the old song goes, Jesus is just all right. And it was really listening to a sermon once on the radio of Dr. King. He did this Mother's Day sermon where it was so filled with love. It was so much the same thing I was getting out of listening to Ramdas speak or meditating or early psychedelic experience. It was the same truth that it allowed me to open my mind to, to Jesus. And then there was this statue on Sunset Boulevard somewhere of Jesus with the Sacred Heart. And that's my favorite image of him. Nothing against other images, but it's positive. It's the Sacred Heart. It's love. It's not associated with the crucifixion or anything. And, um, you know, I just, it just, uh, it's just to me another way of connecting with God. Any way that one can connect with it is good. So you try to meditate, try you know, to read about things, try to uh, think positive, uh, but uh, music can sometimes get you there. And, um, you know, sometimes I want to go where Aretha went, you know, I, right. I don't know what else to say, you know. Right, so it's almost like a, like a transmission of her own spirituality, her own relationship. You well, know, I like, think with, it's a transmission God? of Jesus's energy huh. through different vehicles and that she had one of the greatest talents of her generation and a commitment to maximize it and uh and and uh and and honored that part of herself that loved jesus it, again we're all complicated people and i'm not saying she was a dictionary definition of a saint but i think in those moments when she's doing that she is like a saint hmm. And do you, th that's really cool. <laughs> do you think that that is, um, if she's sainted, given that sainthood through the actual context? Or I, I have this question of, is it really, is it, does the song have to be about Jesus to connect you with Jesus? Is kind of where I'm like. Well, I don't know. Probably not. I mean, but. But it depends who you are and what your own background is. For me, because uh, I didn't grow up going to church or anything like that, uh, it, it has a particular effect. Um, it, it's a mystery, you know, why, how music affects people. And it's also a mystery what the relationship is between the artist and the spirit, because we, we know that there are artists who can vehicles for extraordinarily elevating art who in their day-to-day -day life are quite troubled in one way or another to just you know uh, in varying varying degrees so it's 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 a little different from say a, 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 a yogi or a fully realized you know saint of another line what what great artists do in the world and uh, I, I wouldn't limit it to gospel music, certainly. I feel that way about certain classical music, certain uh, Eastern music. And I like, I feel that way about some of Bob Dylan's songs, uh, too, you know, and Leonard Cohen's songs and other artists that, to me, sometimes tune into a higher energy and through their talent, they're able to connect with an audience who otherwise wouldn't necessarily be tuned into that. You know, it, it enters into the earth realm in a way that conventional spirituality doesn't. 
Uh, so I don't understand how it all works. I just like it. <laughs> right. And that's part of the, the gift of the musical experience, yeah. right? It's like, you don't have to, I mean, you, we could sit and, you know, pick apart the arrangements of the, of that song, which are amazing. <laughs> the way that it's mixed is so beautiful and it sets it up to have that experience. I feel like the way that the sound and the instruments, including the voices, are held in the space, actually do a lot of the work <laughs> to give me, the listener, the space to be there with them, you know? Well, you know, she went through an interesting journey as an artist. I mean, she was a great singer at a very, very young age. And again, her father was well-connected in Detroit. So she got a record deal quite early. She was probably 19 or 20 or whatever. And the first several albums she made on Columbia Records were just good records. They weren't amazing, though. And then she switched to Atlantic, and there was a guy there who was one of my mentors in the music business, so I like to acknowledge him. His name is Jerry Wexler, who, who had this idea to give her a musical context where she could be more free to improvise and wasn't limited by the exact structure of a song or the exact structure of the tracks. And that paradigm shift in the way she was being recorded resulted in everything she's famous for. Every, every, so the first several Aretha albums, they're perfectly good records, but that's not why we remember her. We remember her for Natural Woman, Never Loved a Man the Way I Loved You, um, uh, Respect, and you know, 15 other, you know, if you look at that greatest hits album, Aretha Gold, you know, every one of those songs was after that transition. And then a year or two after those hits, once she had found herself as a singer, and found a group of people who created the context for her to really reach a level of artistic excellence that she hadn't when she was first in the confines of conventional arrangements, she decides to make this gospel record. So it was a fusing of her original spiritual roots and religious beliefs with uh, uh, the optimum uh, creative environment for her, which took her a few years to find. It, she, her first, again, her first few records are not as memorable as what she did after that. Right, and and so that, that improv, improvisational element, it seems to come up and in this conversations that I've been having around the idea of sacred music. It seems to be kind of an essential part of sacred music is this improvisational element, or, or I like how you said she had the freedom to, there was some freedom to um, be with spirit, really. Well, look, there's no, first of all, I'm not a musician or a singer, so I'm trying to describe things that I actually have not experienced and won't, because I wasn't born with those particular talents, but I've admired musicians and singers and worked with them for all these years, and there's definitely a distinction between a great performance, like you might see, say, on Broadway being the epit or an opera, that is, it can be artistically excellent, but it's a craft, and then there are artists who are really in the moment when they're singing in, in, in a more intimate, present level. Now, it's not limited to gospel. I mean, there are other artists that I feel did that. I mean, I feel, you know, in, the, in terms of the people I've worked with in the past, I felt Kurt Cobain did that every time I saw him sing. And he wasn't singing, quote unquote, spiritual music, but there was an 
intimacy and a presence and an in the momentness that's different from sort of a memorized craftsman like ex execution. And I think particularly if you're trying to get uh, into a space of thinking about God, that, that it's better if the person uh, uh, gets their personality out of the way and lets it come through them, you know. But you do have a spirit, I mean, you do have spiritual practice. You know what that means to, to attempt to be in that state, to surrender the mind to the heart or to set the ego aside however you want to yeah but a lot of great singers don't have what we would consider a conventional spiritual practice they they came in with that ability to let the spirit move through them they're like born with it the way a great athlete is born with the ability to jump higher or something like that they still need to work on it and do the exercises to maximize it but the but they're not necessarily you know meditators they just they were born with this gift and if they honor it then the spirit can come through Right, but of course, right. But you, I'm, I'm personally, your personal. What is your personal experience of having that? Like, not through singing or through, but you know, in your day to day life, have you? Had oh, my day to day life. I, you know, I'm a pretty um, uh, textbook hippie. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, experience. Um, you know, um, uh, had vague questions as a kid but it was subordinate to my day-to-day -day anxiety and aspirations. And then, uh, then uh, you know, uh, took psychedelics and everything turned into light and I liked that. And then realized, <laughs> like, as zillions of other people did, including Ram Dass, that there was a limit to what that could do for you and did read, you know, was heavily influenced by uh, Be Here Now. I was heavily influenced by the idea that George Harrison of the Beatles was somehow connecting at the peak of his being one of the most famous people in the world, was connecting with uh, Hindu traditions. And, uh, you know, over the years, uh, just tried to tune in more and more to it. Uh, again, I, uh, through Ram Dass, I met a spiritual teacher named Hilda Charlton who passed away in the late 80s, but who from the early 70s till while she was on earth was very much somebody that I looked to for uh, guidance and she was somebody like Ram Dass and others who believed that there are many many paths to the same goal and that what matters is the is the goal not not what you call it uh, and uh, just uh, over time try to pray uh, you know when I was younger I had a very hard time meditating but I I always used to say it's easier to pray than to meditate. And so I was always a prayer. Once I wasn't always, but once I started praying, I never stopped. Cause, and, and then the last seven or eight years, I've really been able to get into the habit of meditating every, every morning. And it's definitely a, a good thing. I recommend it if you can do it. And <laughs> if you can't do it, prayer is a good second choice. You yeah. know, uh, because it's just connecting with something outside of your own mind, out of your own, you know, uh, confines of uh minute to minute uh so perceptions is, mu is of reality. music a prayer like would putting do you think that like putting on this record in the morning could be and and listening with it could be like a prayer or? well i don't know music is kind of in a category of its own and 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 i would put it in the same category as sort of being in nature like climbing a mountain or 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 just exposing yourself to energy that transcends the mind and it implies the grandeur of the universe in some way, whether it's looking at a leaf or hearing great music. It's, it's not exactly praying because you're on the receiving end. It's not as 
affirmative decision is praying, but it can certainly put you in the right frame of mind. And I don't think it's any accident that a lot of uh, churches will have a choir and then a sermon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at Hilda's meetings or at Ram Dass's, there would be music and then a sermon, that there's something about music that can bridge between the mind and the heart in a way that's, mm. for many of us, quite useful. If it's the right music. I mean, music has a lot of other functions. With like, You can dance to it and all sorts of other things that have nothing to do with what we're talking about. Yeah. And those are very valid forms of music. But the kind that we're talking about, uh, you know, I think, um, I think is a bridge. Uh, I don't think it's exactly the same as praying or meditating, but it facilitates both of those things. Yeah. It's been 20 minutes since we've listened to the piece, and I can still feel it hurt like her voice resonating in my own heart. Like, it, it created a space in in me just from listening to it. Well, here. there's a thing about great singers. It's not only the words, it is the voice itself right. that has an, an amazing power to it. And there are only a handful of people in every generation that have that. Um, you know, I just watched a um, documentary, I forget what service it's on, about Maria Callas. And I don't particularly have an ear for opera. I was just always curious about Maria Callas. And... Uh, I could sense, without being an aficionado at all, how unique her voice was. And uh, there are people, who, in addition to the lyrics, there's so many layers to it, but her voice uh, on anything, you know, just cuts through. It's the why when she passed away recently, there was such an outpouring of mm. appreciation. It wasn't mourning as much as appreciation for mm. what she gave us. You know, when people pass away, there's all different kind of reactions the society mm. has. And, and, and I noticed, with her, there was a joyousness to the fact, well, my God, at least we had her. She was here on earth, you know, and she gave us this, 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 this legacy. She's, she's one of the great ones. You know, there are certainly many, many other great artists in every generation, but she's, she's one of them. And for the, my lifetime, you know, uh, certainly in the top, right up there with John Lennon, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, you know, in terms right. of the iconic geniuses that inspired my generation. Yeah. Well, and the, you said the voice. You you mentioned Kurt. Kurt's voice or Kurt's performance having that similar capacity, but the content is different. So I'm curious about that personally in in music. Like you can go to a, see a performance and you can get this transmission. It could be a transmission of pain even or transmutation of pain, but because the the performer and the voice is so present, it doesn't leave you with that residual. Well, there's another, there are a lot of different functions, like we're saying, that music plays. Yeah. And I think, um, for example, I think people who love the Grateful Dead got a sense of community that was transcendent out of those performances that was uh, not necessarily uh, connected to conventional or even unconventional spirituality, but it was at a higher level than just uh, regular pop music. Um, I think one of the other jobs that music can do, particularly f during adolescence, is make people feel less isolated and less alone. Mm. And that's a good thing. You know, it's not exactly the same as tuning into Jesus, but it's a very positive, loving, healing thing that's makes life better. And I think that was Kurt's lane, is that he had this empathy for the underdog, for the forgotten, 
for lonely people, for people that felt like outcasts. And there was something about the way he expressed himself that made his fans feel recognized and less less isolated and less and less alone, partially by just hearing the music and partially by the recognition of their connection to other people that were also, you know, liking the music. And that's a more common role that that sort of pop music at its best can play. Right. Which isn't necessarily sacred or spiritual, but creating the space for that, would you say? Or It creates a space for it because it's really hard to be open to spirituality if you're sort of hating yourself or miserable. Sometimes it can lead you to open up to want that. But, you know, I, I, I think that uh, who's to say what's sacred? I mean, on one level, everything is sacred. Every molecule of every, you know, as Dylan wrote, every grain of sand, you know. Uh, on another level, there is a hierarchy of... Uh, communication and uh you know uh, so how do you determine what you go to your your uh record cabinet to pull and put out like well first obviously <laughs> it's long gone since there's a cabinet it's all on <laughs> it's all cabinet. it's it's we it, it's it's a blessing and a curse but more of a blessing i think that that you know there are these services like spotify or apple or these others where sort of 99 percent of the music you'd want to hear is available you know, I'm older, you know, I'm, I'm um, uh, in my late 60s and I um, tend mostly to listen to older music uh, that just try to make me feel good, you know. Um, and I'll go back a lot to some of the blues, Mississippi John Hurt, I'll listen to Aretha, I'll listen to Dylan a lot. Or uh, uh, I also, on a separate part of my brain, probably the number one artist that I listen to on Spotify is certainly Krishnadas. Because I just, there's something about his voice that touches me in a way different. There's a lot of people that sing Kirtan, I honor them. But if there's something about his particular voice that puts me in the right, you know, in a good frame of mind. So I, I have an eclectic thing. And then I have the complex, the complicating factor of making my living in the music business for the last almost 50 years, which is, um, means that on one level, I'm a little blocked about appreciating certain music because I commingle it with my uh, disappointments and aspirations <laughs> in the business. So it kind of ruins a certain kind of experience for music for me. Yeah. At the same time, it gives me a deeper connection to certain artists that I do work with. Like I've managed this guy named Steve Earle for the last more than a decade. And, you know, I, I love his music, but I also associate his music with my relationship with him. I can't separate these things out. So I have a... I'm not a great uh, connoisseur of new music. Uh, I, I admire people who are, but again, I'm, um, my own life is such that it feels a little bit like work when I do that, and, and, and that's not the space I necessarily want to be in when I'm listening to, to music. So I'll, I'll tend to go to older things, but every once in a while something new touches me. But Well, it, there's something in all of those voices that I'm picking up on this theme. There's a, there's like a, there's a bit of a surrender in the voice of all those different people where there's a, a set that I think you said it like, uh, you know, setting the ego out of the way. And there's a definitely a, all the things you mentioned have some sort of transmission. I mean, it, it, it's what it's this different strokes for different folks as the great Sly Stone wrote. <laughs> I, uh, I was just had breakfast with a very good friend of mine who's a music fanatic. He's not in the business. So he has a pure connection to music and he loves listening to jazz. And a lot of people that I know, they're very, very smart find an enormous amount of depth in jazz. And uh, certainly John Coltrane, 
you know, clearly a spiritual being. And Ornette Coleman, who I knew personally, was one of the most cosmic people I ever met. But I rarely listened to his music because I never t tuned my ear mm. to appreciate it. Similarly, my son loves hip hop and, and gets and understands depth from it that I just don't have access to because I didn't tune my ear to that. And I didn't, and as classical music, which is obviously, some of it is so elevated and deep, uh, I only have a dilettante's connection with certain pieces of music, mostly ones that I heard when I was younger. I, you know, I came of age listening to Dylan, the Beatles, rock and roll, you know, major chords, guitars, <laughs> poetic lyrics. That's the genre that is my preferred one, but I don't think it's better than other genres. It's just the language that I speak the best. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, but also back to, I mean, Nirvana was a lot of dissonance, <laughs> but but presented. Yeah, well, I thought it was beautiful dissonance. You know, yeah. I thought it was addressing the the emotional space of its listeners in a way that was that was truth, and so it it, it came across not manipulated, not calculated. That it had a truth to it, and it had an emotional uh, power to it. And to me, I feel a lot of inspiration from it. But again, I'm prejudiced. I was in my early 40s when I worked with Nirvana, and if I hadn't worked with them, I might never have even gotten that familiar with, with their music, but, but experiencing it and experiencing the way audiences reacted to it and the way to this day, 25 years after Kurt's death, people still want to talk to me about him. I understand his relationship with his audience in a way that I might not have given my age if I hadn't worked with them. But, uh, you know, I think that, look, a lot of Dylan's lyrics, Leonard Cohen's lyrics, John Lennon's lyrics are, can be very dark. Jerry Garcia, too. Um, but the darkness is in, is in pursuit of truth. There's an article I read last week in the New Yorker, David Remnick wrote about Buddy Guy, the great blues man who's in his early 80s now. And he said, Buddy Guy says in it, the funny thing about the blues, he said, if you don't have them, you can't play the blues. But after you play them, you don't have the blues anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, I think that's true, and I don't totally understand it. I mean, maybe words like catharsis are related to it. Yeah. Uh, or maybe it's that phenomenon that Ramdas would talk about of being able to witness something. All I know is it's true. There's something paradoxically joyous about the blues. Right. Right. I'm working now, uh, and again, I'm biased by the people I work with. I'm, I'm working the last year or two with an R&B singer named Betty Levette, who's 72, and she claims to be an atheist, and I believe her that she believes that, but God, there's a spirit that comes through her as, as a performer that's deeply moving to me. Hmm. Uh, I'm not so sure about that idea of labeling something spiritual and other things not spiritual. To me, the key word is love, and hmm. if something opens your heart to love, to me, that's spiritual. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's great. If something opens your heart to love, that's spiritual. Tell me what, what was the musical experience that drew you into the music business? Well, when I was a teenager, I was one of those people when I was 13, 14, feeling very um, alone and disconnected. 
And um, I remember when I was 14, I think, I was at some Quaker summer workshop thing my parents sent me to that ended up being a great idea. I got a lot out of it. It was during the Vietnam War and learning about pacifism and kind of a loving element of the anti-war movement really was a great thing. But there was a guy there that sang a song I'd never heard before uh, called I Ain't A Marched Anymore. And it turns out that the artist who wrote it and originally sung it was Phil Oaks. So I went home and got Phil Oaks' record. And those were political songs. There was an album called All The News That's Fit To Sing. And it was just somehow expressing in songs what I was feeling. And that led me into... Um, you know, into uh, into some other songwriters that to me were meaningful. And then uh, the first time I smoked dope, I, I remember the, exactly the records we listened to was Rubber Soul by the Beatles, Out of Our Heads by the Rolling Stones, and Daydream by the Love and Spoonful. How much so, later was that than the Quaker camp? That was maybe camp? a couple of years later. Maybe okay. I'm 16. So by that time, now I'm just in love with the rock and roll of that time and felt that was speaking for me more than any novels or theater or movie or anything like that. Um, and just uh, Hendrix and some of the other artists that emerged and you know what one's record collection was, was a way of, you'd go to someone's house and see what records they were listening to and you felt like you knew them. Um, then I just stumbled into the music business uh, when I was 18 because I needed a job and I didn't even know there was a music business. I just knew I needed a job and I got a clerical job at Billboard magazine and it turned out that there was this business around the music that I loved, which, which was a great, uh, exciting thing to me because I knew I had no musical talent. I couldn't possibly be a songwriter, a musician or a singer. I just tried to play instruments. I just couldn't do it. But I could be a fan, and then there were these people that got to go to concerts for free and then write their opinions about them and get paid for it. And I thought, <laughs> how do I get that job? So, uh, you know, I, over time, wormed my way in, and it's been a, a, a good run, and, you know, it's not worth going into the whole story. But the music that originally inspired me was definitely... Uh, you know the the same things that inspired but a lot of people. But you've had these relationships the with with different artists, so you have had this intimate. You have a, I mean, you have an intimate relationship with with different artists, which takes you into the music and a, and the experience of it in a in a different way. Yeah, it, again, it's a, it's a it's a funny thing. The, the, as we sit here, um, I'm a few in in two weeks. Uh, uh, Stevie Nicks is going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So um, I was uh, started a label in the early 80s with a good friend of mine named Paul Fishkin, and we knew Stevie and recorded her for a solo album. So she's like invited us to come and sit with her at this thing. So that's like kind of mind blowing to me that, that you know, it's, it's 37 years later. That was 1980. It's almost 40 years later. Um, the sense of camaraderie that some of us had who who believed in her as a solo artist. It sounds now ridiculous, why wouldn't you? But she was in this band and the band, it was not clear initially which were the members of the band that were the most talented. Is that the picture of the moment? Oh, the, me and Stevie? Yeah. Well, the one behind you of me and Kurt is really the one of the moment. Oh, right. Um, but uh, 
I appreciate, uh, I am corny and old school enough to have a few pictures of myself with a few people that meant something to me in the office. It's part of marketing when someone comes in, see, I really knew famous people, right. I'm not just bullshitting. Right. And part of it is I like looking at them because it kind of tunes me into certain moments that mean something to me. It's a little, um, it's, it's a little corny and a little egotistical, but I, I have not... Uh, I well, it's totally on the wall the in, a, in a frame that makes yeah. it so much cooler. You and yeah. Stevie, you and Kurt, you and Ginsburg. Yeah. And who painted your Krishna? That's Ioni Sky did that. Mm -hmm. She is uh, married to one of my other clients, Ben Lee, mm -hmm. who is talk about an artist who's also a spiritual being. Uh, he's a remarkable um, artist based in Los Angeles, originally Australian. And for the last decade or so, he's been married to. Ioni Skye, who's an actress, and she's also a painter. And I, she had an exhibit of her paintings a few years ago, and I just fell in love with that Krishna and bought it, you know. That's great. And then we've got Woodstock right above you. Yeah, that's a, uh, you know, I was at Woodstock as a reviewer. I was 19 and Billboard sent me as the guy to review it. And so it's always <laughs> had a totemic symbol for me in my head. And that photo is, um, uh, you know, was given to me for many birthdays ago uh, by someone, and it was um, it's a Swami Satchidananda, who was one of the people that really brought yoga to a lot of Westerners in the in the late '60s. Uh, and I didn't know him. I I sort of went to a few of his lectures and looked him in his eyes once. I wasn't like a member of any organization he had, but I, I respected him a lot. And he gave like a blessing at the beginning of Woodstock. And that was a moment in rock and roll and pop music that was kind of unique, where they would think that for this biggest rock festival of the world, they should have a yogi come out and do a blessing at the beginning of it. So I've, I like that picture. It's sort of him from behind. And then you see the several hundred thousand people uh, out in the audience, and uh, you know that particular version of Woodstock uh, did turn out well for most of us that were there. Uh, so I like thinking about that as an aspiration of what uh, what uh, rock and roll at its best can 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 do. And how does that fit into your understanding of karma? You know, I don't know that I have any great understanding of karma. You know, I just want to try to. Um, get into a place of remembering God as much as I can and, and, uh, and opening, you know, being in a space of love as much as I can and not being a prisoner of my uh, paranoia or easily hurt feelings or anxieties, you know. Uh, how karma works, uh, there's smarter people than me about that. I, I, I just don't know. I, I just try to do the best I can from minute to minute. I'm not even sure how much of this is really me doing anything. Or, <laughs> I, I, you know, a lot of times it feels more like being on one of those rides at Disneyland where you're on a moving, you know, yeah. carpet and it's somebody's already written the script. I'm not sure how much of the script I'm contributing to, but to the extent I can well, tune into love, you have, I'm, I'm you in have tuned shape, into some you know? of these, you know, pretty iconic figures yeah. throughout your life yeah. and stumbling into a job at Billboard at 18. Yeah, yeah, that was amazing. Those things are, you know, that's pretty undeniable yeah, I mean, flow of life that wasn't a, you were ambitiously well, setting and also, out to manage. Well, not at that time. Yeah. I just wanted to be able to have enough money that I could get my own apartment and then have to live with my parents. Yeah. Uh, there's been many, many times when uh, 
you know, uh, I mean, I there's a story I've told on other podcasts on Be Here Now, but not on yours, and it, it either will or won't be of any use to you. But you know, when I was 22, I had spent several years um, as kind of a rock critic and sometimes a PR consultant. I was kind of making a living doing this. The, the business was so exploding at that time. And then it cooled off a little bit and my own relevance cooled off. And I found myself unemployed for several months and I was running out of money and I think I had one more month's worth of rent left and um, was trying to think, is there anything I could sell? And I, I was somehow convinced myself that if I ever had to ask my parents for money at that time in my life, I might as well just die. It was just, it was just I just felt that would be a... I was very attached to the idea of not doing that because it would have been such an admission of failure that I hadn't gone to college and all this sort of thing. And I couldn't, I just was really freaking out. I, I called everybody I knew and I couldn't get a job and I looked in the Village Voice ads and times and there was nothing happening. Uh, a couple of my friends did set up an interview, interview or two for me, but nothing came through right away. And around this time, um, uh, Ramdas was in New York and uh, he used to stay sometimes at the apartment of a woman named Gloria Stavers, long ago passed away, but who was the editor of Sixteen magazine, an interesting character in the history of pop culture that's worthy of another conversation. So I, I had met him once before, and he had told me about, um, go, why don't you try the Zen Center? So I went to some Zen Center and sat there, and I just got very little out of it. My legs hurt, and I just... Didn't feel that inspired by the whole Ron thing. Rondas told you to go to yeah, a yeah, and I just, I just, it just wasn't working for me. So then I got to see him again. He was back in town, and I said, um, "Look, I know last time, you know, he sees zillions of people. There was no reason he would remember my particular thing." I said, "Look, I tried the Zen Center. I just, I just didn't feel anything about it. I mean, I'll go more." And he just laughed. He says, "I don't care if you go to the Zen Center or not." He said, "Maybe there's something else you would like." He says, "There's this woman, Hilda Charlton, does these meditations on Thursday." Why don't you try that? Let me find out the address. And he calls someone and gives me the address. So I go down there, and it's at, it's, it was in St. Luke's Church, which is subsequently burned down and been rebuilt. But it's on Hudson Street. And I go in, and there's like a couple of hundred people, all with weird beads and robes and chanting stuff. I didn't know what they were doing, and I felt quite out of place. But I kind of made myself... I said, look, I'm down here already. I made myself... So she started speaking, and at some point she said, you know, you've got to challenge God, kids. She always called all of her students kids. She said, you can't just... You've got to say, God, I don't care what you did in the Bible thousands of years ago. I need to know that you exist now and in my life. And you've got to say, Jehovah, Lord of the hosts, you said, try me and prove me. Well, I need you to answer this prayer in 24 hours. So... I walked out, I didn't know anybody there onto the street, and I said, okay, God, uh, Jehovah Lord of hosts, um, I need a job, what is this? I'm here on earth, I'm walking around, <laughs> like there must be something I'm supposed to do. I, I want a job in 24 hours. Next day, I got a call from a friend of mine named David Silver, who is a common, uh, you know, then as now, my best friend, and who's done many, many podcasts for Be Here Now, and had one with Ragu for years. And uh, he says, you'll never believe this, because David was struggling with his own professional situation. He couldn't get me a job. He was just hanging on for dear life himself. He says, you'll never believe this, but this guy at Channel 13 that I work with wants to meet you. He read some article you wrote. So I meet this guy, and he wanted me to do a thing on, uh, uh, they were doing a foundation proposal for experimental video 
and could I oversee the editing of it and write the proposal? I'd never written the proposal. I'd never been involved with editing a video, but it was $200 a week for three weeks. I said, great, I'll do it. So <laughs> I do three weeks worth of this. And then, um, and then uh, you know, it's up, it's finished. And I go to another one of these Hilda meetings and I walk and I said, God, I meant the full-time job. Three weeks was great, thank you. But now what do I do? <laughs> 24 hours. Next day, I get a call. It was a Friday. Her meetings were on Thursday night. And, and uh, there was a secretary at the PR firm of Salters and Roskin, an old school PR firm, where I'd interviewed months earlier, Gloria, the woman who introduced me to Ramdas, had called the guy and said this could be a good guy. And they were looking for a long haired rock type. And I didn't hear anything. I figured I didn't get the job. She says, I'm so embarrassed. I was supposed to call you and I couldn't find your number till now. Can you start work on Monday? And wow. I've worked ever since. So <laughs> I really uh, have come to believe, uh, uh, is that karma? I would call it grace. Yeah. I'm not sure about the difference between karma and grace. I, I don't want to You're willing, but there's I am, an element but of you're willing thing, to go and ask. It's a true story, yeah. and I recommend it to anybody. Uh, I can't promise that the results will be quite as dramatic, but they might be. That's, but that's been my experience, is to honor when a, a lot of the things are mysterious. On the other hand, better not to be a jerk, better not to lose your temper, better to show up on time, better to, to be ethical. You do all those things, right? but I think it's just a good idea and it makes me feel better not to be a jerk if I can remember not to be one. But at the end of the day, a lot of it is just a complete mystery. Well, and that is something that is coming full circle with the song that we listen to, I feel like that's what we're sitting in, in that. We're sitting in that mystery. Yeah, you've got a friend in Jesus. That's what you're saying. You've got a friend in Jesus. Yeah. And you, you but the whole thing, the way that it's set up, the whole way that it plays, the whole space and ambiance around it is, is sitting in that, is sitting in that mystery. And then there's the, the language is guiding you to the friend. And she says, meditate on him. I'm just, I just yeah. never thought of Aretha Franklin even using the word meditate. I and know. it just, you know, it just, it just, whoa. Meditate I'm, I'm on him. I'm thinking that was all us hippies. She, they, yeah. They're meditating too. Meditate on him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's right in the, she, she inserted that right into the lyric. Yeah. And if, when she said, the way she said it though too, it also made me feel that it was romantic. It made me feel like it was a, uh, romantic expression. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's delightful. Thank you for turning me on to it. And uh, just tell us briefly um, what's going on. You've got your book coming out. When's it coming out? Yeah, what's I, I wrote a book called Serving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Cobain. The publication date is April 2nd. So my guess is it will be in the it will have come out by the time somebody <laughs> hears this. So <laughs> it came out on uh, April 2nd. And, uh, you know, I loved Kurt and I worked with him for several years. It's a memoir about those three and a half years of his life between the time I met him about eight or nine months before the big Nirvana album, Nevermind, came out and his death. And um, I did the best I could to reconstruct our relationship and what was going on then and spoke to about 40 people that. I worked with during that time uh, and uh, went through my old notes and reread hundreds of interviews he did and did my best to uh, paint a little different picture of him. You know, so much of the public perception of him has become about his death that was so 
horrible and he, he, he did have a heroin problem and he was prone to depression, but he was not, uh, that, that, that's only a piece of who he was. He was also a loving, beautiful guy who was one of the great geniuses that rock and roll ever produced and who was extremely um, responsible with how he used his success in terms of supporting other artists and standing up for women's rights and gay and lesbian rights and, and setting an example of not being a jerk as a, as a man, you know, kind of redefining what, what it was to be a man in, 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 a, in, a, in a, a rock world that was otherwise toxically macho. And, um, you know, I just loved him. So it was, uh, it's gonna, 25 years since his passing, it seemed like the right time to do the book. And that's, that's my latest book. What's the title? It's called Serving the Servant, yeah. Remembering Kurt Cobain. And the title is a play on words. Uh, the second, the last Nirvana studio album was called In Utero, and the first song was called Serve the Servants, plural. Uh, it's one of my favorite songs of his also. And, and, and um, so I just, I called it Serving the Servant on the idea that he was kind of the servant of a muse that he could, only he could understand, but which he could somehow transmute to millions of fans. And my job was to try to help him wherever I could, which was not always that much, but I did the best I could and I <laughs> loved them. Oh, so I look I forward to, to reading it. I'm really excited yeah. to read it. And I think uh, people will be happy to have it. And the timing is great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Danny, oh, for the blast. time. It's Thank been so you. much fun. I'm so, so looking forward to watching this film and reading your book. Thank you. From Ram Dass to Sharon Salzberg, Be Here Now Network is home to over 17 amazing podcasts. But we can't do it without your continued support. Donate at BeHereNowNetwork.com slash fundraiser to receive an exclusive gift and help us continue to deliver over five fresh podcasts each week.